you like being misrepresented? Do you like saying one thing only to hear that other people are twisting and turning what you have said into something that sometimes is completely unrecognizable? For people to take uh, what you have said and to call into question whether it's true, whether it's trustworthy, or for you to say one thing and then for others to turn around and lead people that you care about deeply in a way that's completely contrary to what you have said and what you have spoken and what you have communicated. That upsets us. We want what we say to be rightly and truly communicated, especially when the consequences of it being distorted and twisted could end up turning into something that is dangerous. If, if you feel that way, and I feel that way, do you think that God would feel that way? That when His words, when what He has communicated and expressed, how He's revealed Himself to His people, His love for them, His intentions for them, his calling on their lives, his promises, that he wants those words represented rightly and accurately and taught and trusted and depended upon? He does. In Second Peter, we've been hearing uh, from Peter, one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, one of the people that, that Jesus has said, when there's questions and concerns and doubts about what I have said, what I have communicated, if people are thinking that misrepresentation has happened, I want them to look to, to you and your word because I am revealing myself through you to set the record straight. In Peter's context, these churches have been infiltrated by misrepresenters of the Word of God, by false teachers, Peter would say. And God, because He wants and He deserves to be rightly represented, because He loves His people and He cares about His message of grace and redemption and His character rightly being communicated and demonstrated in the world, is not standing for the false teaching. And here, he is sending Peter in this letter to correct this false teaching, to set the record straight that the destruction and the damage might stop. If you would, look with me in Second Peter. We are going to be looking at, uh, in chapter 2 uh, together this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through the first half of verse 10. Uh, this is on uh, page 1018, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. Uh, remember, uh, where we ended up last week, Peter has reiterated and confirmed to us that what he is communicating to us about Christ's uh, character, his person, his work. He was an eyewitness. He was an apostle, a follower of Christ. And God has been revealing his character of who he is through his spokespeople, the prophets in the Old Testament. 
and that the Holy Spirit is speaking accurately, calling us to trust and listen. Now here, Peter is exposing some of the false teaching, the misrepresentation that is happening, and calling us and these churches to faithfulness. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by, their, by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that you have given us trustworthy and accurate revelation of your character and your will for us as your people. I pray this morning that you would guide me, guide my words, guide our ears. May you not be represented in what is communicated this morning. Would Jesus be glorified? And if anything is out of place, we pray that you would bring us to correction and truth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Peter is seeking to address the false teaching that is going on in these churches because it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to distort the Word of God, to distort who He, is, who he says He is and who, how He has called us to live. Look at how Peter points that, that out in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Peter is saying that these, this 
false teaching is destructive. It is dangerous. It wreaks havoc in and among the people of God and his witness in the world. And notice, one of the the reasons that it's dangerous and destructive that Peter says is because it's deceptive. It comes in secretly. Many times those who are are passing on and communicating false teaching, it, it sounds like they intend to honor God with what they're saying. They sound like they are seeking to uphold his character, his love, his goodness. But what Peter says is we've got to be very, very careful that we're not deceived, that we don't come under uh, the, the destructive sway of these teachings and that we continue to go back and compare it and verify it with God's revealed and taught word. What were these heresies, these destructive teachings, these false words that Peter tells us? Uh, As he says in verse 3, that in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. What, What was going on? What were these false teachings, this destructive um, uh, heresies that were going on. Look in verse 1, what he says. They will come in who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Although they may profess that they are followers of Jesus, that he has bought them and redeemed and saved them. It's, it's deceptive. But by their teaching, by their lives and their actions, they're denying him. They're denying that profession. They're calling into question whether he has really even bought them or not. Because they're denying his authority in their life. They're denying that Jesus has the right to declare how we are to live, how life is best lived out before him. Notice in some of the ways that it it plays out in verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. As it comes up again in verse 10. Especially those who who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Here, uh, what Peter is is honing in on is an element of the false teaching that was going on in these churches and in these congregations. Had to do with God's uh, intention and his design around sexuality. About how we are to use our bodies, the pop, proper place for sex, with whom and when we are able to have it. It's goodness and how God would or would not want you to participate and enjoy it or not. And Peter is saying that these teachers and what they are communicating denies Jesus' authority and the teaching that he gave about how we are rightly to use our bodies and they're leading God's people astray. Is that still going on? Is this kind of false teaching still happening that can be and sound deceptive? That the focus is on God's love? 
hear some popular and current teaching in our culture that comes from influential pastors and Christian so-called writers. This is from Danny Fankhauser, who's written a book and has a, uh, a blog writing about biblical views of sexuality. The Bible does not define sex before marriage as a sin, she says. But even if it did, there are grounds that following such a rule and following it, uh, would be following the letter and not the spirit of the law. A God of love who wants people to live life to the fullest would want a first century girl to abstain from sex until marriage and would need to require boys to do the same. Because in her context, she thought that that would be uh, what best would protect them and be a show of God's love. But would a God of love want a 21st century woman to avoid physical intimacy until she finally is married, perhaps in her mid-30s or even later? Her conclusion in her book and in her writings is no. A God of love would want you to enjoy this good gift whenever you want to enjoy it. Uh, in fact, uh, another pastor writing in the same vein, Reverend Brom Bromley McLennigan, says that uh, there can be holy and wonderful sexual relationships outside of marriage. Holy and wonderful. As long as this is met. Mutuality, reciprocity, and love, she says. What about God's teaching? What about what, how he calls us to live? This isn't just surrounding heterosexuality, distortions of God's intentions, pursuing defiling passions, to use Peter's terminology, or going after sensuality. Uh, this also comes to play in teaching on, uh, on homosexuality in our, in our culture and in uh, a lot of, uh, of churches today. That many would say, that something that the Bible never explicitly forbids, this is from uh, Bishop Andrew, Alexander, something the Bible never explicitly forbids is loving, faithful, monogamous, life-giving, same-sex relationships. You see, the, the, the teaching can be deceptive as it begins to focus on, on God's love. How would a loving God say, you can't do these things? This isn't what I intended for you. Why would I not be able to pursue what I enjoy and what I want to go after? Someone who loves me would never do that. And if we are going to rightly reflect the God of love and honor his character in the world, we won't forbid and speak against those things. Because that would bring shame upon God. And Peter says, no. In our house, Harris, his, Harris's favorite food is a bubba. Now, for you who don't speak Harris ease, that is bread. He loves a bubba. And we all love a bubba. In fact, I, I, I make a lot of it. The kids help me make it. I enjoy making it. It's a good thing when I make bread and I make it because I would love to see my kids eat it and enjoy it. I make it so that we can eat it together and so that they can have it. 
and put butter on it or jelly or whatever they want to put on it, but enjoy consuming and eating this good thing that I have made for them. Now, what if Harris, in wanting to enjoy this good thing that I have made for him, says, I want to eat my Bubba in the middle of Church Street? Who am I to say, Harris, no. Although I've given you this bread in love, that's not the proper place or the proper time to eat your bread. I want you to eat it somewhere where you will not be in danger, where you use it properly and enjoy it in the right context. Would I be unloving to say, no, Harris, you cannot eat your Abubba in the street. That's not what I intended and designed for you. I would only be loving if I told him no. It's dangerous. I do not want you eating it there. I gave it to you. It is good, but you are only to enjoy it in its proper context and in its proper place. That is what the scriptures tell us about when God created sex. It is good. God gave it to his people and to humanity to enjoy in its proper context. And as the master, as the creator, as the loving and caring heavenly father will speak and say to his people when it is appropriate and when it's not. Where you are to partake of sex, when in the context of marriage, between a man and a wife. Peter is saying to go outside of God's intentions, to deny the master who made this good thing and has graciously given it to you to enjoy in its proper context is destructive. It's false teaching. And Peter is here seeking to set the record straight in these churches where those same violations and distortions of God's word were being taught that it's okay for you to participate in these things. And Peter is saying, no, they're dangerous. They're destructive. Why? Look at what he says in verse 2. There will be many who follow their sensuality. The teaching sounds great. Who doesn't want to eat more bread? But notice what he says the result will be. Because of them following after this false teaching, the way of truth will be blasphemed. You see, God's character isn't tarnished when we proclaim what he truly teaches. Which is what a lot of times the false teachers are seeking to, to say. Where God's name is and his character is tarnished is when we live in a way that is inconsistent with his revealed will. Remember, we have been saved and redeemed by Jesus, brought and adopted into the family of God. And remember what Peter has told us already. You've been saved in order to begin to live out the character of your God. You are being renewed and restored in his image to reflect his beauty and his glory and his grace and his truth to the watching world. 
And God is saying, you can't go the route of false teaching because my character will be misrepresented in the world. It is destructive. If you live like this, you are saying that this is what God approves of for his people and for humanity. And Peter says, no, the character and honor and right representation of God is at stake. God wants and has redeemed and saved his people to live in conformity with his revealed will. And Peter has told us that what we read in the scriptures is the word of God. The Holy Spirit spoke and worked through these writers to give us God's word. And as uncomfortable as it may be, if sometimes we want to reject it and don't want to follow it and our culture has a hard time with it, Peter is saying, don't you see? This is the truth. God is revealing his good intentions for you. Don't be led astray. Hear his in love calling you to sound teaching, to hearing his words rightly and understanding his good purposes for you, his people. But it's not just around elements of sexuality that this false teaching was coming into uh, the context of this church, uh, these churches that Peter was writing to, or our churches today. Another element that Peter touches on uh, continues to recur. Um, This is a book by a a man named Rob Bell. Um, uh, Back in the early uh, early 2010s or so, Uh, He was pastoring one of the fastest-growing churches in the country. Um, He was listed in Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, And this book, called Love Wins, was a New York Times bestseller. Listen to what he says about the teaching of Scripture and what is communicated about God's judgment of sin. To begin with, a bit about this book. First, I believe that Jesus' story is first and foremost about the love of God for every single one of us. It is a stunning, beautiful, expansive love, and it is for everybody, everywhere. That's the story. For God so loved the world. That's why Jesus came. That's his message. That's where the life is found. There are a growing number of us who have become acutely aware that Jesus' story has been hijacked by a number of other stories. Stories Jesus isn't interested in telling because they have nothing to do with what he came to do. The plot has been lost, and it's time to reclaim it. I've written this book for all those everywhere who have heard some version of the Jesus story that calls their pulse rate to rise, their stomach to churn, and their heart to utter those resolute words, I would never be a part of that. You are not alone. There are millions of us. This love compels us to question some of the dominant stories that are being told as the Jesus story. A staggering number of people have been taught 
that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment and hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth to the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Uh, it, it sounds like Rob Bell is seeking to honor Jesus and his story of love and the hope of the gospel. And his concern is that teaching about God's judgment disparages his character. It is toxic and disruptive to Christ's story and the good news of the gospel. Notice, though, what Peter says. We must listen to God's word. Look at what Peter says, because this same type of false teaching was going on in these churches. They denied that Jesus was going to come or that there was going to be a judgment. Bell doesn't deny that Jesus is going to come, but this element of the judgment is denied. Listen to what Peter says, though. Look in verse 1. That they're denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. As he continues to go on in verse 3. In their greed, they exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter is apparently convinced and communicating what Jesus told, that there will be a judgment of those who rebel and deny him. In fact, Peter goes back. Remember what he just told us a few at the end of chapter 1, that the prophets... The Old Testament was the word of God that came from the Holy Spirit and that we should listen and follow it. Notice, he goes back to the word of God and notice what he demonstrates and shows. Look in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment Peter says the angels and their rebellion and their rejection of God's authority were judged. He goes on down in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The flood happened in space and time and history. And Peter is telling us what the scriptures tell us and what God says, that that flood came as judgment upon an ungodly world who had rejected God as their king and ruler. He goes on down in verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Peter says this is clear teaching in the Scriptures. God has shown Himself over and over that He will judge sin. He will judge rebellion. 
And these weren't just isolated incidences. But they're break, times of breaking in, the end time judgment and showing so that people would know and realize that God detests sin. He is a holy and righteous God and He will come and He will punish sin and rebellion. Even as He continues on, what was going on when Lot's heart, as He describes it, seeing their lawless deeds and hearing them in verse 8, and then looking in verse 9, that in light of all these examples... Notice that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. God is keeping and preparing a judgment of sin. In our culture, one of the chief values is justice. You hear it everywhere. As a culture, we are calling out and longing for justice. When Andrew Brown was killed, there were people who were longing, protesting, and talking about the need for justice to come for Andrew Brown. There were other people who were saying that justice needed to come in order to stop crime and what was going on in our communities and to protect citizens. There are are those who, who, who talk about the need for justice to come to make sure that everybody gets to vote, voting justice. There are others who would protest because their understanding is that Injustice is occurring in the voting process. And people who got elected weren't the right ones to be elected, and they want it made right. There's injustice that has occurred racially and socioeconomically. And people from all sides, unified in our culture, although we may disagree on the definition, people want justice. And when justice isn't occurring and it isn't happening, people are angry. And they say that is wrong. When justice doesn't occur, that is wrong. We all agree and recognize that. A judge who does not bring justice is a horrible, wicked judge that we do not want ruling or judging in our culture. The scriptures tell us that if God isn't judging sin, that would mean he is unjust. The scriptures tell us that God created and made all things, and therefore he is the ruler of all things. And we have rebelled and rejected him. We despise his authority. We do not want him to rule over us. And God says, the just penalty for rejecting and rebelling and committing treason against me is my justice. My just wrath, because I am a perfect and righteous and holy God, 
poured out on sinners for your rebellion. You see, we, we have a problem with hell. We have a problem with God's justice and His judgment because we don't understand the sinfulness of our sin and how we have offended a holy and righteous and good and just God. Actually, our culture wants a just God. We want a God who will make it right. And what that means is that He will judge and punish sinners. The Scriptures are clear about that. An unloving and a a wicked God would be one who didn't do this. We want this kind of God. We're longing for this kind of God. And Peter is saying to teach and communicate that God will judge sin rightly reflects his character. And to deny that denies his goodness and his grace and his mercy. Do you not see that in the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Because we deserve God's wrath and punishment. How in the world are we going to be saved? Only by God taking the suffering of Jesus in our place. His wrath poured out. God's wrath was satisfied through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus for his people, for those who hope and trust in him. So notice, Peter's correcting this teaching. He's going to touch on it again. Distortion of sexuality, distortions of God's teaching on judgment and justice. But notice, lastly, where Peter points us. It's not just that God will punish false teachers and those who are unrighteous and rebelling against Christ. But he will also preserve and rescue the righteous and the godly. Look in verse 5. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others. He goes on and says about his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed to make an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. But he rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed over their sin and their rebellion. Whose righteous soul and his heart was tormented over what he saw. Peter goes on to say, if God knows and he has been doing all of those things, then he knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to preserve and save and redeem them. Well, hold on, Peter. Are you saying that that it's only those who do works of righteousness, only those who aren't those who 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 have sinned in the areas of sexuality, that you will save and redeem? No. Noah wasn't saved because of his righteousness. Lot wasn't saved because of his righteousness and his goodness. And no Christian in here is saved because of your righteousness and your goodness. Remember what Peter told us back in verse 1 of chapter 1. He's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is only one way to be saved, and it's by the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness becomes yours as you look 
and hope and trust and cling to Jesus in faith. If you're resting on your own righteousness, that is denying the master. That is rebelling against his authority and what he has done. Notice here, Peter is proclaiming the good news of the gospel, that this judgment can be avoided, that salvation is on offer for sinners. Does that mean if you've sinned in the ways that Peter has talked about here, if you right now are denying and living in a way that you're denying God's judgment, you're denying his authority in your life, you have experienced sexual sin and are participating and practicing it now, No, there is hope. There is the offer for redemption and salvation. The judgment has not come yet. The God who judges also offers grace and mercy and forgiveness in Jesus. He is the one who grants all things that pertain to life and godliness. Christian, if you hope to live out this life that Jesus has called you to. It's only going to be in your reliance and your resting and your trusting on Christ. Left to yourself, you would distort every single one of his commands that are in the scriptures. We are no better than anyone else in this world. Jesus is a good and great one. And by his mercy and in his grace, he has saved us. Why? I don't know. Because we deserve hell. We deserve to be rejected from him. But do you hear his grace? Do you hear his call? Turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellion. Not just to escape judgment and punishment, but to know and gain Christ. The lover of your soul, your redeemer and your savior, and the one who wants to direct and guide your life so that you would experience humanity in its fullness in a restored relationship with him. Hear his call today. Turn and hope in his mercy and in his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that we're not saved by our righteousness. We're not saved by our sexuality. We're saved by your grace and your mercy. Please show us more who you are. May our hope be always and only in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.